Are you okay? I've told you about a few dates this year. How many exactly? Uh, well, I've actually had 63 first dates. 63? <laughs> All the dates are documented in a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm given a colour as to whether I want to see them again. So red means hell yeah, and blue is probably dead in the water. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good system, that, Anna. <laughs> I thought a spreadsheet were a quilt. <laughs> so how are you? I I am very tired today. Um, I've been I was, I, I was just in Boston, back in Chicago. So went from beautiful weather to terrible weather, and now my body is very confused. <laughs> it's terrible weather here too now in Connecticut. So I imagine probably in Boston too. I'm exhausted. I mean, exhaustion is sort of an interesting segue into today's topic. Yes. Episode topic. <laughs> yes. Exhaustion, burnout, overkill, all of the above. I'm Nama Cates. I'm Catherine D. And we, we met, met online. So... Today's topic, spreadsheet dating. Yes. I feel like this gets couched as a new phenomenon, but I think it's even probably even older than when it entered the online discourse. So spreadsheet dating, what's a good one sentence summation of spreadsheet dating? It's sort of exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it's it's dating according to a list, kind of. And you know, you said it's not a new phenomenon. I'd say it's as old as any, it's as old as kind of the cultural institution of, of marriages and matchmaking have been around where people used to match based on, I mean, in India, the Hindu culture, they would have their own sort of spreadsheet dating of a kind that was based on something like the, uh, the religious signs that like astrology, I don't want to misspeak too much because I don't know anything about it, but it was also those were charts and they would compare people's charts. So in theory, this has been around a long time. I would characterize it a little bit differently than any type of dating that is maybe like optimized. It seems what characterizes spreadsheet dating is one, you are assembling a long list of choices on your own. Two, it's outside of your normal community. And three, the volume is higher than one would expect for the time and place that you're inhabiting. So you hear about it a lot on like Twitter and TikTok. Um, it, it's kind of been a fixture of the discourse, I'm going to say since 2021, maybe. It seems like it's been coming in and coming at you. There's always a viral tweet or TikTok, usually like a young woman in New York City or the Bay Area as it, <laughs> you know, as it's always like a young woman and a high pressure job in a big city who is dating so many people, or if not so many people, enough people that she needs to put their names in a spreadsheet. And then usually there's some sort of numerical rating and she's almost tracking it like it's a project. And it's kind of, the stereotype is like, it's something that a girl boss does or like a product manager. It's just one of these topics that everyone argues about it. It goes underground um, and then it comes back again. Right. It's a very hustle culture is, you know, that's right. that I would say goes with it. And for me, it was interesting thinking about this was the example you gave because there's the spreadsheet in and then the spreadsheet out. And I would think of that one as being spreadsheet out, like 
keeping track of the information once you have it. I didn't even consider that an option. I was just thinking about the spreadsheet as in that's where you sort of input parameters, you know, the qualities that you're looking for. Right. There's there's so many different iterations of it. And sort of the idea is that it's treating data like a corporate project, basically. And it's it's taking it's taking the rules of corporate life and applying it to your romantic life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To a sick extent, I'd say. <laughs> right. And, and you see it quite often with people who like I feel like there's this this archetype and I don't know if this woman is real or not or if this is sort of like a conflation of like many different inputs we've sort of synthesized into this like imaginary girl boss everyone hates but like this woman who's gone on like hundreds of dates she's taking meticulous notes on all of them she's constantly talking to 10 people at a time uh, maybe it's like a first date every night or something like some crazy number and she's still alone and she doesn't talk about it with bitterness necessarily, but it's sort of this neutral, like, it's so hard. You know, here's how I'm getting through it. Um, you have no idea what she really wants or what her end game is. Like, is it to get married? Is it simply to to find a, a boyfriend for the moment? How long does she date when she dates? But it's like very robotic. And there's another sort of iteration of the same it's it almost feels like an urban legend even though i've seen real people kind of express some version of this frustration but there's there's another iteration of it where it's like the woman who slept with so many guys and is raiding them right like the darker version do you know like what are the most common qualities or attributes that people use when they spreadsheet date because i can think of like you know, height, uh, income. I don't think it's too exhaustive though. I think what people are like looking for is like, you know, were they hot? How much money did they make? How'd the date go? What kind of date was it? Um, and height, height's a big one. But other than height and income, mostly qualitative, subjective, like their own opinions and impressions about something like that's what they're wanting to record. Not some kind of objective, discrete value. Their own, like, you know, do I want to see them again? And they, they're keeping track of this. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, would you really not remember that? Are you keeping track of these things, like, for your own personal diary, like a young girl would? I, I think the, the implication here is it's someone who's sort of ruthlessly trying to find the best partner. Right. And that's really what upsets people, especially, I mean, I, especially the incel community who is more t- tuned into this idea of hypergamy. Yes. So it, it's it's like somehow especially insulting, and you know you mentioned um, you mentioned data scientists and this kind of another I think unspoken element of this, especially when it's um, because there ha- there have been like a few write ups and Vice and and Vox and whatever, but when, when these stories are being relayed to a less online audience, there's this unspoken detail that these women aren't supermodels, right? It's always these very right. sort of average looking women. And they, it's like insult to injury, especially when the manosphere or the encelosphere is commenting on it. It's like, okay, we have a five or a six, parenthetical. Here. And they want to, you know, six foot, six inches, six figures. Right. Cliche. But indeed, incels took on this idea of sub eight theory. Like this was a meme for a while before it used to be a normie a six or a five, a man, like anything less than that would end up being an incel. And now it's like, just keeps creeping up to where anyone under an eight or a nine has no chance because of hypergamy. 
The Vice story, for instance, about this, Vice kind of captured the spirit of this right with their protagonist that they followed into this concept of spreadsheet dating with an app called the Don't Waste My Time application from someone named Christine Gwaze, which she created herself to send out to prospective dating candidates. She's like an app developer, maybe, or she works in tech or something like that. And she did have some pretty high standards. It began by saying, alongside a sliding scale for dick size... Between six to nine inches and a height scale that starts at five foot 10, these are some of the questions from Christine Gwaze's Don't Waste My Time application, which she sent out to prospective dating candidates in 2020. So dick size is in there. And interesting is a lot of the women who are prone to doing this in sort of a loud way. Um, and I, so I think it's like, it's people like Gwaze from the Vice article. Um, and then there's sort of the, the TikTok version where it's like you racked up a bunch of matches on Hinge or Bumble and you put, you put them in. A spreadsheet and then there's this other version which is the person who makes like a dating profile that you sometimes see pop up on twitter which is basically like here's who i am right and you know here here's what i want one thing that all of these women have in, in common is not only this connection to the corporate world but they tend to be in these male-dominated environments they're from the bay area or they're in the the rationalist community which is is very male heavy yes. or they work in tech and another unspoken sort of detail here, which is uh, spoken by, again, the encelosphere and the manosphere, but not necessarily people coming in from outside those online worlds, is that when you're a woman in a male-dominated environment, that also warps your standards in the same way that like learning everything you know about romance from like incels.co <laughs> might warp from your perspective. And you would have experience with this, right? Yeah, I I lived in the Bay Area briefly and dating in the Bay Area was unlike anything I had ever experienced to the extent that it changed my my self-perception briefly. It's not like a permanent state, but it changed my self-perception because I had been coming from um, New York and uh, to a lesser extent, South Florida. And in those environments, um, women, as, not only in those environments, but also the years that I was like active... <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> women are, uh, are really at a disadvantage and it's the, the standards are unforgiving and you're, you feel lucky if like, um, I don't want to create a hypothetical man here and make, you know, <laughs> and somehow feel like I'm dunking on someone. Some, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but you, you, right. Like you feel, you feel lucky if you get attention at all. And then you go to the Bay area and it's, it's suddenly you have all of this capital that you didn't know you had access to. And it's the only place I've ever been to where it doesn't matter what you look like, what you bring to the table in any respect. There's something so like, you know, through the looking glass about not only the Bay, but then like if you, if you're a tech worker. Yeah. So our first interview on my show, I think you talked about this. You were comparing New York and LA to Boston and San Francisco respectively favorably saying it's easier in those, you know, slightly North markets. I could see that just because New York, I think because, and LA, because there's, you know, fashion and Hollywood and stuff like that, that it's more about appearance. But when you say it doesn't matter what you look like, you don't have to bring anything to the table. What do you mean by that? Because you're also saying that this is where people were doing the spreadsheet dating more or less, right? Yeah. It's do men do this? this? No, if for men, no, it's right. Okay. Right. Men are like the, the interesting thing about the Bay Area and 
I don't know if this was like maybe like only true for like a certain number of years or if only true in my social milieu. So I don't want to speak for everyone. Um, but men are living sort of the incel nightmare in the Bay Area, whereas New York is the like the fem cell fantasy. Right. So, so, you know, I can't, I can't speak to LA with like any authority because I, I never, nor will I ever, thank God, try to date there, but it seems like, you know, possibly worse. I lived in LA for 10 years almost. Was it awful? (laughs) I mean, it was awful in the way that like everything's awful and probably would have been, you know, I'd never actually dated in this way at all. Like I've never really gone on, you know, kind of casual dates or really use dating apps. Maybe I'd I'd meet someone for like coffee once and they might kind of be acquaintance for a little while. Like I never really did it. I would always get to know people, you know, I would meet people through work and through mutual friends and things like that. So I never really had the experience of just being in the meat market. Thank God. It just, it seems I can imagine doing it in any place. Yeah. I, Right. I I definitely never was a spreadsheet dater and I never was like super on the apps either. I did a little bit of app dating. Um, but my approach to dating is so idiosyncratic. It's almost like the opposite of spreadsheet dating. Like Mine too. Yeah. I've gotten a lot of heat for it actually as I've been more open about it. But, you know, I give people like three chances, right? So if like the first two dates are bad, you get like a third date to sort of prove yourself. Um, really? I don't really... Yeah, because I feel like you don't know. Really so like the fact that you even have that rule is like amazing to me. <laughs> I, I feel like you like good matches can get lost through like nervousness or like oh, putting up uh, yeah. charade or something. Something that we'll we'll get to. I want you to keep going about this, but just before you do, I wanted to mention the love calculation. That was oh big. yeah. We'll talk a little bit about that sickness, but where you have to, you know, de rigueur, reject the first four people or whatever, because of some statistical principle. And that's to me, just, it just doesn't make any sense to live life that way. But so yes, to even have like a a uniform cutoff after any point is difficult for me to imagine. It's always about degrees. Like how bad was that first date? <laughs> what was bad about it? You know, but keep going with your process. So I, I maybe go in the opposite direction, right? Because I get like, I don't have qualifications people need to meet. The flip side of that is I'll also cut people off. You know, Like if once I decide I'm done, I'm, I'm done. Right. But- it's almost arbitrarily, but yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's almost arbitrary on uh, both sides of the coin. I feel like I've been pleasantly surprised by like very unlikely people. And I've noticed that the way I feel about people change changes as I get to know them. Completely. So I'm maybe like more open. So I've never been like, oh, like, he, you know, he doesn't make enough money or he doesn't have like the right kind of profession or he's not tall enough. There's certain like bare minimum thing. Like if, like if I'm really not attracted to a guy, then no. Right. Like, of course, but but it, like, the reasons for that are kind of ephemeral and hard to like, yes, for me too, if really not attracted to someone, then you're really not attracted to them. But there's no feature or detail or attribute that I could say would be definitive. Right. The other thing is I wanted to make sure that I allowed for like some serendipity as difficult as that is. Right. Uh, to, you know, in this landscape. And I also think like digital serendipity is real, right? Like you might not meet someone in the grocery store or at a bar in the same way that you could have in like 2006, 
but you can meet someone online and it's almost like meeting them like while you're picking out your favorite brand of yogurt or something. I think it's the same. I think if you meet someone online, because we asked our, our some of our listeners like about topics that we should cover. And some people said social media sl- sliding into DMs success as, as a possible category. And to me, that wouldn't even occur to me to make that a category because to me, if you meet someone online, but not through a dating app in some other way, then that is kind of just like meeting someone, you know, at the grocery store or at a party or whatever. Sort of. I, I would say like the difference there is because you might not be in the same place, um, like the getting to know you process is, is different. Yeah, the, the whole, the getting to know you process is very different. The things that you might be attracted to or not are very different. Like it's all very different. I just mean the serendipity is the same. And to me, I think what separates that from like dating proper or using apps or something like that is that if I meet someone with the knowledge that like we're supposed to click, and this is like an, an interview for a potential love relationship, and both people are hoping that's where it is, it just I've never, I've never successfully developed feelings for anyone that I've met that way. It feels too inorganic. And that's what this whole spreadsheet dating is all about. Everything is very deliberately decided and everyone is this potential suitor and you are going to meet them and rate them and keep track of it. Right. Well, the, the interesting thing too, is like, and we mentioned this a little bit earlier is it's so unclear what people's goal even is right. Because these aren't necessarily people who are dating to marry and who are, who are doing it in this like calculating, like sort of rational way. Like I want to get married and I want to have children. So I need to make sure like, it's a weird, you know, it's a weird environment out there. So I need to make sure that I find someone and be, and I'm serious about it. Like often these are people with this, this sort of like, you know, delayed adolescence really? uh, kind of, yeah, I don't, I don't think at least the stories that gain most visibility on social media. I mean, this might actually be a good segue into the genesis of spreadsheet dating discourse as we know it, which was actually in 2012, you have your first sort of round of this. And it was a, a gentleman named David Merker, I think is how you pronounce it, who had input women from Match.com and had rated them. And he came off as like a douchebag, and like there's a whole spate of think pieces of like, what is this guy doing? And I, I think it's I think it's really really interesting that in you know, one of the first articles, and I don't recall this might have been from an Atlantic article, but this was how it was originally framed in round one of spreadsheet dating discourse. In terms of romance, we are hopelessly hypocritical. While we know books like The Game and The Rules exist, so as a parenthetical, all of this is happening kind of like at peak commercialization of pickup artistry, um, which is another, I think, interesting detail here. Yeah. Um, we also really don't like thinking that people we're dating are doing any of that sort of thinking at all. We want people to go in without the complications that make them human, the petty desires and shallow needs and manipulations, and to fall hopelessly, madly, non-spreadsheetly in love, and to forget about all else, assuming we feel the same way. If not, they're creepy. The spreadsheet brings us back to a reality in which people are more complicated, have more complicated lives, and maybe have motivations other than simply wooing one particular person purely. But the idea that love is not, in some ways, business or at least is more than simple, pure feelings emanating from our perfect, pure hearts. Well, that's an idea that the movies want us to believe. There's more to it than that. As the self-help relationship books illustrate, 
everybody's angling for something. This guy's game failed because it was nerdy, because he did it the wrong way, because he told the wrong people. But if a spreadsheet helps, let daters have the spreadsheet. But yeah, don't forward it to anyone. That's just dumb. So what stands out about this to me too is one of the reactions to spreadsheet dating, um, like from like Mary Harrington, um, for example, is that big romance, right? This sort of commercialized idea of romance has ironically made everyone more calculating. And her perspective on romance is like, you need to find someone practical because the foundation of social stability is within marriage, is within the household. It's sort of in the style of Dan Savage. What is it like Mr. Right? Like Mr. Right enough or like Mr. Yeah. Right enough or something, something like this. But actually, if you look at like early spreadsheet discourse conversation, it's no, the spreadsheet helps you find the person who's good enough, even if it's not like Prince Charming, which I thought yeah. was it's sort of an interesting switch and in how it's framed. I, I agree with that. I actually think that both of those approaches are similar in the sense that they want to take just the, the serendipity, the magic, the romance, in my opinion, like the whole point <laughs> to a large extent out of out of it. I think that his approach and, and Mary Harrington's, for example, are both kind of equally pragmatic, but that's not what spreadsheet dating has become, right? It's not necessarily about being pragmatic anymore. Right. I don't I don't think so at all. Um I think what's like funny is like it's you're you're sort of on this like hamster wheel, but you don't really know to what end. I mean let's say, you know, opening up <laughs> the top of the funnel makes it more likely that you meet like your perfect chat or whatever, but it does it. You never really hear like, okay, so then what do you marry them? Do you have kids? Like it just, it just seems like it's this like perpetual search and people only focus on the search. Yeah. I mean, I kind of assume that maybe that's in the discourse, but that most people, if they do meet someone that they're quite happy with aren't going to keep doing this out of an obsessive need for something more and better. That's what I hear incels talk about. That's also what the vice piece implied was a paradox of choice, right? And something that I've talked about on the show, the illusion of infinite swipes, that people have this illusion that they could always do better, get someone better, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a lot of the, you know, the hypergamy that women are always like looking for the next best thing, which is not what hypergamy means. There's kind of a, a misunderstanding of that term. One person continuously wanting to improve on their partner. Like that's, that's not what it means. It means someone sort of marrying up socially usually. But do you think that people are really, I think that when it comes to um, maybe going on a first date or something like that, that Maybe some women, probably still a minority, would have a bottomless desire to see how much better they can do. But I, I really don't think that happens much. I don't think the actual spreadsheets happen that much. I mean, I think like it's so it's it's interesting to like think about this in sort of like the historical context, too. So it seems like, right, all of this is a reaction to dating, like the emergence of a dating market right? Yes. Especially like post-sexual revolution. And you see like the boom in pickup artistry, which starts in the late 60s and, and develops, uh, you know, as through through the internet, as everything does, like from Usenet to the blogosphere, then it becomes like a commercial hit. There's influencers. You have all of these ways people are trying to make sense of it, of it being a market. The development of like pickup artistry, like in some ways looks very similar to people who give like 
career advice, right? Completely. Yeah. You know, for most people, like if you think about like through lens of like career advice, not everyone is like a LinkedIn hustler who's writing these long threads and who's following gurus and stuff, right? But there's like this minority of people who are hyper-focused on it. And it's almost like it's not even about what the profession is. It's sort of about suddenly the focus is on searching for the best job and the process of finding a job and like the meta of searching for work somehow, right? I feel there's definitely a population for whom that's true. But most people who are engaging with that content and who are in this this labor market really just want to get a job and um, they might send out a bunch of applications and it might look a lot different than job searching in the 50s or 60s or, or whatever, but... The goal is ultimately the same, yeah. Right, it's not this obsessive thing. It's it's still, it, it would be wacky to someone 50 years ago, but it's not their identity. But then there's this vocal minority of people who they cast this shadow and it's like, was everyone like that? Well, of course not. Like not everyone's a spreadsheet dater, but they they represent the most extreme expression of what it means to be in a dating market. Well, uh, so to me, that would be kind of like the comparison between the influencers or the the PUA gurus and their followers and their audience, right? Like, so some of these people live by this and their lifestyle and they make money off of it and they they have a whole lifestyle and a whole brand based on it and they sort of capitalize on everyone else, but they do influence the thinking of a substantial you know, they, they, they change the culture. So I would say that with spreadsheet dating, it's influenced people's outlook on dating just for women alone. And I think that we talk about PUA, but it's mostly, it is women who do this, right? Like this is something that women do. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. I, I bring up uh pickup artistry because it does seem like it in a weird way, like lays the groundwork for this type of thinking. Yeah. Um, and it also, it also just shows like all these different reactions to, I think, the sexual revolution and sort of those social changes, right? Because um, it's it's even deeper than just, oh, dating apps, right? Yeah. I think it's dating apps just somehow creates the conditions for this to become even more eccentric. It also reflects those conditions. Right. Like dating apps couldn't have been successful in an environment where people weren't already open to meeting people outside of their community, outside of you know maybe their social class in some cases. It's interesting that you say that even if not everyone is is engaging in dating in this way and this isn't what everyone's dating life looks like, I think you're totally right that like it sets a tone um where maybe like the average person is actually going on and I'm, and I'm just making up a number here uh like three to six dates a year. And for so- some people will be lucky and it turns into a longer term thing. Some people are maybe lonelier. Um, it is in the it's in the water somehow, and it influences how we view it. And that also creates the conditions for different reactions. Like there's this sense of like dating app burnout, even if you're not someone who has gone on a hundred first dates. There's wide criticism of women for being, you know, sluts or hypergamous in this way that in sort of the colloquial sense, as you pointed out, it doesn't it doesn't mean someone who's constantly trying to level up, but rather someone who marries into a higher social class, right? And then there's also a, this emergent like attraction to matchmaking, which we've seen kind of rise in the last I don't know two or three years. It's people offering to matchmake on social media, 
releasing like these dating profiles is sort of a form of matchmaking. Um, girlfriend and wife bounties is something you occasionally see on social media. And then there's also some apps. Girlfriend or wife bounty? Like like these, like, you know, people saying like, I'll, you know, $500 or $10,000, yeah. right? To whoever can find me my wife. Um, <laughs> Small price to pay. Right, right. Like So like matchmaking is entering the discourse again. And Keeper, which is my friend Indian Bronson's app, is like one example. I think maybe the most successful of these sort of matchmaking projects. But there's dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Yeah, I remember at like Y Combinator, a demo day. Um, I think it was like la- like one of the demo days last year. It was like apparently there was like three matchmaking apps or something. So it's on people's mind. What's interesting about Keeper, and I think sort of the cool thing about Indian Bronson is he doesn't want to return to like pre-market conditions necessarily. Like he's very much a believer and the only way out is through. So his vision of how to fix dating problems is, well, let's harness the existing technology to scaffold the values that he thinks are important, right? right? Yes, I'm intrigued by that. That's what initially a lot of the dating apps like offered to do. You know, it was like first eHarmony offered to do that and then OkCupid offered to do it. They made these claims like, you know, we base your matches on like a scientific psychological battery of values. They had this whole secret sauce process that was supposed to work differently, magically and scientifically. Happier with OkCupid than Tinder because it felt like the the attitude towards dating was somehow different with OkCupid. I guess there was also this thing of like, oh, I have to write a profile and like people were were not happy about that. I mean, that would be the most fun part, I would think. Yeah, well, I think the problem with writing a profile is like you, there's certain things that work. So you can't truly be yourself, but you also have to be unique. And it was this contradiction that was really hard for people to square. And now I think there's like chat GPT or there's some kind of AI helping people write dating profiles, apparently. To me, it's very strange, but that was kind of like a a very crude version of some sort of software offering to do what a matchmaker does. So, and the eHarmony one was this, um, it was this long, or maybe it was OkCupid. It was like a long questionnaire. It was almost like the um, MMPI, you know, the three hour long psychological test. But I don't know that it, it had any impact. I mean, I haven't, yeah, I don't think there is any. I mean, all these apps kind of cite their statistics, et cetera. But I don't think they're significantly different. So, like, what's Keeper? How does Indian Bronson propose to do this with Keeper? Apps? So, if I'm, hopefully, I, I do it justice. I think he collects a bunch of data from both parties and ultimately matches people based on values and also like desired outcomes. So, everyone there needs to have some desire for marriage. But I think, like, you know, what kind of marriage? How many children do you want? Where do you want to live? things like that. I also think that you're not just going through people. Like he provides people with a finite number of matches and either it works or it doesn't. You accept or you don't. Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, that is spreadsheet dating of a different kind where someone else is kind of curating. Right. Big problems. I think with, you were just talking about how dating was becoming like the dating market and it was actually becoming something that was of financial interest to many people. And with that, all these, you know, bullshit gurus like the PUAs and all these apps that a lot of them, I think just a few years ago, Match Group uh, was sued for sending fake 
profiles to people like fake matches to get them to subscribe and they monetize your time like the way social media does so that you only see things if you're paying, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea that someone is offering a service that has a limit where there's finite options seems good in a way. It sounds like integrity, but then at the same time, how long has it been out, Keeper? Not very long. It has to have at least been over a year because I talked about it briefly when I was on Tucker Carlson, which was a long time ago now. So it had at least at least a couple of years, even. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the thing is, you know, I, I I think of it this way: like where we are now is like dating is like an unregulated market, and there's some like you know monopolies um, and some unsavory corporate practices, and someone like Indian Bronson is trying to regulate that market. It's still a market, but let's introduce <laughs> some regulation. Right. What do you think about this idea that, you know, you can optimize and, and tech your way to love? Like, let's talk about the 37% rule. The 37% rule is, is the number of people who you will meet in a romantic context. Like at what point it's most statistically likely that you will meet your right match. Uh, you know, yeah, so, there's an actual calculator online for it. And right. I just took one look at it and I was like, I'm not even going to input <laughs> it <into> this. <laughs> there's a lot to it. I don't I don't know how I feel about it. I think I'm maybe more of a romantic. Um, just yeah. Because, yeah, I, I just feel like as much as I, I can read all this stuff about what's the recipe for a durable relationship and what, you know, all, the, all these social science papers... Um, not that this is necessarily like a, you know, a, a hard and fast rule that everyone should take super seriously, but even things that it maybe are more, um, that a little are a little bit more common sense than that. Yeah. Right, that are like better tested. And I still sort of have the, it, it, it's like the, the clip from our misconnections episode that someone sort of took out of context about how I like <laughs> saw someone in an airport. I feel like that's just sort of my, my outlook. Like, I just don't know. Not even just in respect to myself, because I, you know, I, I am very blessed that I, I do think that I'm with the love of my life. But this informed my dating approach. I, I was open to dating different kinds of people because maybe the love of my life is right now a cashier at Burger King or something. Like I don't know. Like why would I? Why would I rule that out? Uh, which again is the almost the opposite of people who are super optimized or maybe it is a different form of su like super optimization um so i kind of throw out all of that kind of common sense stuff because I'm, I'm a hopeless romantic same i i don't think it's a different form of that at all i wouldn't sully it with that <laughs> for me too i've never in my experience you don't know necessarily people that have these spreadsheets and these lists of the qualities that they want if you are very serious, I suppose, about getting married within the next three years, and I, I don't know, maybe you come from like a certain social class, or I don't know, you're a very different type of person than, than me, then maybe it might make sense to do something like that. Still not like all those numerous dates, but to be a little bit more orderly about it <laughs> might make some sense. And to have some, maybe a, a few items on a checklist that are important to you. People have those. They're like non-negotiables. And I understand that. They're usually pretty big things. You know, if someone's very religious, maybe they'll want someone who's the same religion as they are. Someone knows that they're very family oriented. They don't want to be with someone who doesn't ever want a family. Big things like that. You know, an alcoholic who's a recovering alcoholic doesn't want to be with like a drug addict, et cetera. Big sort of values 
those things can be non-negotiables, I understand. But beyond that, I think to have like a, a height minimum and an income minimum, it doesn't make any sense to me because those aren't the things that make a person or a connection. And you don't even necessarily know what you want or what you value when you meet someone. And you don't necessarily know that you're going to fall in love with a person when you first meet them. And that's not necessarily the reason that you're meeting them and the reason that you begin talking to them. Like, where is the the romance of that? And yeah, I understand it's not practical for people in this day and age and hustle culture and, you know, everybody wanting to get the most out of every second and not having time and all of that. But I think that that's the problem for these people is that attitude, you know, and maybe if they kind of slowed down a tick, they would be able to find something that might be right, you know, right in front of their nose, never noticed it. Like, I, I think it's that sort of grind attitude to it that's going to make everything a letdown. I, I think so too. Being too, too pragmatic is a problem. And I also think pragmatism probably leads to boredom too. Yes. I think it's a form of settling to only go on these sort of these more superficial metrics and then, I mean, yeah. then there's these like weird, like knock on effects. Like what about, you know, who you have a good emotional connection with or who you have a sexual chemistry with. And I think what's, what's sort of forgotten there is like the, the counter to that is like, well, sexual attraction fades or, or, or evolves as you age. Um, if you're someone who wants to raise a family, like uh, there's these other qualities that you'll want to optimize your search for. But it seems like it would be so much easier to to get through hardship if you sure it would be it would be easiest if you had all the money in the world, but it would having an, an emotional connection or sexual chemistry as well, like those those things make a big difference. Yeah. And I think they also they speak to something else too. Like I don't think that we can necessarily state, you know, what qualities or or break this down into any kind of science what leads to sexual chemistry between two people. But I think it's fair to say that to an extent, it does come from other sort of deeper compatibilities between two people. Like, I, I think it's kind of rare that people who have no intellectual connection at all will have a really strong sexual uh, or, or, you know, no emotional, like they don't sort of, I don't know, speak to something that the other person needs. Like, and these are the terms that a lot of, you know, incels and people who see things in a more rigid black and white way will write off as as nonsense and like oh magical woman woohoo stuff that tries to make something magical and beautiful out of something that's not but it's really just a nuanced way of of looking at the world like you can't break everything down into a numeric value or a spreadsheet and i just think that you're really missing a lot <laughs> if you only look for that and how can you ever also imagine going on that many first dates like how can you really develop an emotional connection with anyone if you know you have a, like another coffee date later and then like three tomorrow? Or even just even if you, they're not planned so far in advance. I, right. I once met this guy and he had got on like 150 first dates in a single year and, and he was so jaded. Of course. I I mean, the, the thing about this guy is I, I also I also think and I don't think this is usually the case with people in this situation. I kind of think he was gay, but like so deep in the closet, like he didn't understand why like he wasn't attracted to these women and he kept like divining reasons. And I think the reason was just he was homosexual. 
Like, um, but it might also be why he was going on all those dates too. Like it's, you know, we talked about misconnections being a way to avoid intimacy. Like this might be also. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true too. I think this is definitely a way to avoid getting hurt in, in some way and uh, to avoid, avoid taking it seriously under the guise of seriousness, of course. Yeah. I mean, in, in the, the Vice piece, I think the author mentioned that she saw it as a way for people to feel that they had some control over something that was very much outside of their control. And I, I get that and I see that, but it's, that's very much an illusion. And, you know, you, you can control something by like rejecting it from the outset, which I think this almost kind of is. I mean, I, I think it's a way for people to avoid intimacy, to avoid rejection, to avoid taking risks, and to feel like they're actually doing all those things and they're like a whiz pro girl boss at them. But really, it's just um, a shield. Yeah, I think you're totally right on that. And maybe that's why it's you know so popular now, along with the rise of incels and femcels and girl bosses and hypergamous sluts. Like... <laughs> I mean, I think it's, I think it's changing. Uh, I, my suspicion, and I'm saying this without any statistics, but my suspicion is that people either don't date or they're dating in a much slower way. I don't necessarily think that, um, people are, well, let me, let me reframe that. So they're either not dating, they're dating in a slower way, maybe not necessarily in the physical world, but like sliding into DMs or, um, there's, they are viewing it as like a completely transactional um and it is you know it's it's like about like farming simps or farming sex and that's probably like a minority of people that make everyone uncomfortable that is how i would guess that gen z is approaching dating because i feel like spreadsheet dating is also a very millennial older gen z yeah phenomenon i don't think it's something that uh, people who are in college or maybe in their early 20s are necessarily doing and in all the the videos and stuff that you see that occasionally go viral it's, it means always millennials it's or it's always people who you know just made the cut to be gen z but they were like this close to a millennialdom yeah like women in their in their late 20s around 30 plus it seems like yeah i i listened to um a, a dating podcast when I was uh, flying back from Boston. I wish I remembered what it was called, but one of the women observed that this sort of hyper-rational approach to dating is like a disease of women in their 30s, just because you feel like you don't have an, you don't have the time for serendipity and you don't have the time, you, you, you can't afford to fuck up. Um, but then ironically, you're, you're so anxious about it. It creates this feedback loop where you're, you're trapped in the, the hustle. Yeah. Um, I think it was a actually subversive uh, Alex Kashuda's podcast that Razib Khan was on. It was one episode I think I happened to hear where they were talking about that, like the women in their thirties having this urgency and therefore being so enthusiastic and intense about dating because they felt like they were running out of time and, and the men wanting nothing to do with that and that creating a big sort of chasm between them. Yeah, Razib, <laughs> that's a that's a, a favorite talking point of of Razib's I've observed. He's a he's a friend of mine um in real life. We we both lived in Austin at the same time. But yeah, I mean I think I think he I think he brings up a good point that and this I mean this is a trope that you would see in romantic comedies once upon a time too, right? Like um bringing up kids on the first date or just like even if you don't like right, you yeah, somehow yeah. like this, woman. Like, detect, yeah, detectable sense of urgency. 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, definitely a known trope of big romance. And paradoxically or ironically, I guess it's it's just funny how these girl boss types, the spreadsheet daters, um, their whole ethos is to not fall for the lie of big romance by being pragmatic and being methodical and not allowing for serendipity by kind of getting ahead of it. And yet they actually sort of typify this desperate woman trope. Yeah, dating feels like, you know, it's like buying a pair of jeans, just finding a therapist. No, I hate that. I hate that I said that. But um, it is it is one of these processes that you just want to, I think more people just want to want it to end and end happily. <laughs> then they want to be stuck in, in doing it forever. Yeah, right. It's a chore. And and so they approach it just like that with a, a chore list and a groan and a timer and everything. One thing I did want to touch on um, that we we kind of we kind of touch on a little bit, but is how this impacts how people have sex. Um, yeah. And I think this is another very like millennial phenomenon of like, having sex just because it's like i don't know the expected thing to do right yeah you know um it's sort of part of the evening um and the burnout there christine emma and her book rethinking sex she sort of she sort of touches on this a little bit how people are just having sex that they don't want and it's not really like motivated by anything other than i guess this is what we do now and there's something kind of dark about like this added dimension of like you're on your 15th first date of the year to use a more realistic number. And you just, you're going to have like soulless uh, first date sex with some guy. And then maybe you'll see him again, but probably not. Um, And it's, you know, like dissociative and not fun. And. Oh God, that's horrible. Yeah. I mean, I would hope that at least most of these women who are approaching dating this way, are not having first date sex at all. Yeah, I mean, I wonder about that. Like, probably a lot maybe, of is this one of the things like lurking underneath this that there's like a lot of bad sex happening? And like, would would dating at this volume be, would it somehow feel better uh, to hear about if there was no expectation of sex and you knew for a fact that like- um, Is there an expectation of sex with first date? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I know we're in a, a, a sex recession, but also like we're we're kind of in a romance recession in general. So Definitely. the people who are who are dating in this way are already in the minority. So they probably I, are the people who are having high volumes of sex too. Yeah, I mean, I I guess in the post-COVIDian era, people might be feeling deprived of of touch and, and wanting to have sex, even with a first date. You know basically stranger for that reason, which is okay, that's fulfilling a need. But otherwise, yeah, that's wow. I mean, it didn't even, I would think that people who are approaching sex like this, where they ostensibly value themselves and and see themselves as as very worthy, because they require that their um, suitors meet all these criteria, and where they're methodical, and where they are directed, you know, and driven I'm I'm just I'm surprised that that's the type of person who is having first date sex out of a sense of obligation. That's very no, sad. I, yeah, I I think I think they do. Um, You're right, actually. Yeah, and I I almost wonder if like like you, like another right like a like a twin kind of like discourse talking point when people are talking about dating, especially on social media, is like, are coffee dates okay? Well, I think like a, a missing. Um, detail here is like, well, what what kind of dating is happening? Like maybe if a lot of these were just sort of innocent coffee dates, 
um, and not like people going to a bar or something, then maybe it's fine that you that you go on so many first dates. Not that it's ideal, but maybe there's something if it was somehow more a little bit more innocent. I mean, that's what I yeah. I was imagining that it was mostly short, like coffee dates, maybe a dinner or something. No, I think I think a lot of these they might not be like dinners all the time, but I think it's it's probably more like drinks. I I do think there's probably a lot of again like a lot of dissociative sort of unwanted sex. Um, you're right. For Christ's sake, they got a dick size chart, <laughs> so there must be sex. Sure, you're right. I I, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm not. I've never been in this community, so I don't I don't know for certain. But I've I've heard from some people that Mormons when they want to get married, they go on like a high volume. Of certainly not like in the hundreds, but they go on like, you know, more than maybe is normal for states. But of course, they're always like, you know, they go get a soda or, or something. Yeah. yeah. And I, you get like filtered out like super quick. Maybe some of this is fine <laughs> if we changed the the dynamic a little bit. I mean, I guess, I guess it just goes back to that other point, which is like, it's a market and it's completely unregulated and we need some form of regulation because the way it is now it's breaking. It's not self-correcting. Right. Not at all. And it's so important to people. I mean, it's, it's like everything to them. Yeah, of of course. I mean, people have less friends than ever. Um, Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to it for, for how difficult it is to date. It's so much easier to date than make friends. There's no equivalent. Yeah. All those like, uh, hinge for friends and stuff like those never really took off yeah um yeah i mean i i also wonder what the future of, of dating apps is I've, I've heard some people suggest that maybe it's um that in itself was a was a fad that's when it come to come to an end i i have always thought so i mean i've always thought that there would be no dating apps basically by now but i don't know what I, I, I don't know if it will be like reversion to the mean or just return to meeting through more platonic or like interest based things, or if it'll just be a different iteration of that. And I think that it probably will because I mean, people have sold love and romance and sex and finding yours for a long, long time and will continue to do that. Yeah, I'm curious what the what the future is. Yeah, well, we'll find out, I guess. Um, All right, and I guess I guess we'll see. I guess we'll find out soon. <laughs> All right, talk All right. Bye. Baby, why do you all alone? And if it wasn't for the music, I don't know what I'd do. Yeah, last night a DJ saved my life. Last night a DJ 